Welcome back, folks, to episode 13 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skills and Self-Improvement Project podcast with your host, me, Dr. Armando Dominguez, Ph.D. in Health Psychology and also adjunct professor at a local community college and longtime researcher of martial arts and alternative and complementary medical modalities. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is fear. Fear is a big deal. Lots of people talk about fear. And uh, we have loads of memes about fear and how to deal with things and how fear is something that appears as real. But fact of the matter is uh, those are nice little philosophical approaches to dealing with what we would conceive of correctly or incorrectly as something that is frightening or induces a, a discomfort that we would call fear and that can result in fight-flight response. But today's episode, what we're going to be discussing is, well, the process of fear. How do I conceive, how do I think, conception of fear? And also, how do I perceive fear, the actual state of it, whenever we realize that all this time up until now, these episodes of Running Man podcast have been discussing the physiology of stress response. Then we realize that uh, there are things that can get us there to that level of stress. And often uh, thought is involved whenever there is no actual threat and we can get ourselves to that level. And also whenever we are in a potentially dangerous or scary situation, something that causes us to fear harm or looks like uh, something that's going to engender harm in the immediate moment. So we're going to discuss fear today. And uh, I'm going to start with something that I've lifted from Frank Herbert's Dune. And I've read this for years and I've used it as a mantra at times whenever things have become really, really difficult, when it is hard to think my own thoughts and to get myself out of that state of I am afraid. Notice that I said I and I spoke it over myself, am, state of being, in quotes, afraid. I don't even like saying that. But fact of the matter, it's a very common colloquial. People speak it often and frequently. And what I'm encouraging as a part of this podcast is that we become more mindful as to the way we speak to ourselves, not just the way we talk to others and how we say things to other people, but how do I speak to me? Whenever I'm by most me, by myself, in my innermost most solitude of not being around folks or maybe just in my own little world, my inner world, inside of me? How do I say things to me? And uh, that is a rhetorical question that I want you to really kind of wrestle with a little bit, because if you're aware of this already, good. If you're not, become aware of this, because it can make a very big difference. But uh, what I'm going to be reciting right now and kind of taking apart in the practical sense and pulling out the nuggets of usefulness that you'll be able to take with you today uh, stems from uh, what in the book is called the Bene Gesserit Litany of Fear. So I will ensue by reciting this and we'll take it apart and discuss it as a useful tool, a self-regulatory tool that was existent in this whenever he wrote it in the 1960s, which is amazing to me. So here it goes. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. 
I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn my inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Wow, just reading that is a very powerful thing for me. Because working in the field that I do in mental health, a lot of folks mention the things that cause them stress and fear and has caused them dysfunction in their lives and also uh, remembering whenever things have been traumatic and dangerous and hurtful to them physically, that the memory remains with them, but also conditions them moving forward to expect and predict when the other shoe is going to drop, when fearful things will come, when dangerous and painful things may come again. We start becoming mind readers, time readers, people readers, behavior readers, and uh, the body language of a person, the tone of a person is enough to set things off in a way that it may encourage anxiety, post-traumatic stress, stress, not necessarily disorder, but even PTSD, uh, panic symptoms, things of this nature. So why read this? Once again, there are useful tools in it, and I'll take this apart. And we'll make a very good teaching out of this because it's been a useful thing for me, but many people that are practitioners of warriorship, uh, martial arts, not necessarily for just sport, but those that choose to better themselves do this exercise on occasion to find out, well, where do I stand relative to when I fear? Notice I didn't say when I am afraid. But when I am experiencing feelings of fear, that's doing a calibration but also a reframe of the verbiage that I would use versus implicating myself as I am afraid. What I'm saying is I am experiencing feelings of fear. And there's a big difference in how that lands inside of us and how we represent ourselves to ourselves and how we value ourselves in stressful situations. And even whenever we're by ourselves in our innermost being. So the very first statement says, I must not fear. Notice the term I. That's an egocentric thing. I indicates social, meaning that there's valuation by others, but also my measurement of myself and identification of myself. I am me. That's me. I. That also attributes ownership in a sense. That's why it's such a powerful term. Whenever we speak of things, I am this, I am that. That also lends credence to what it is that we consider ourselves when we're out and about in the public or interacting with other folks, but I must not fear. That indicates that there's a wisdom stepping into stating this, that I know that I shouldn't fear. Not shouldn't in the sense that I'm weak or you shouldn't do that because there's something wrong with you, but rather a need to know that fearing is not beneficial or helpful. Fear is a natural thing. It's an occurrence. The state of fear. But one isn't fear. One doesn't experience fear, yes. But one does not necessarily benefit from fear by being afraid and letting it drive, so to speak. So we can't let it be in control. And this isn't a control statement, but rather one of becoming aware and learning where our exaggerations of things become fear-inducing. Often the way we represent things in our minds, we tend to predict 
and over-respond because we're trying to arrive there with all the extra. Kind of like the old adage about taking a knife to a gunfight. And then someone says, that better be a really big knife. Because <laughs> that gun's going to reach out and touch you from farther away than what you can touch them with that. That's the understanding anyway. The next part says, fear is the mind killer. Mind is a product of brain doing what we call thinking. Or the think process in that moment, it's singular. Because it does not conceive time in the experience of doing things. You just are doing that. Some of the Zen folks would say that you're the action that you're doing or actioning in that moment. So there is no conception of time in the sense of this takes so long to do this, however long to accomplish this from point A to B. It's not quite like that. It's being immersed and being mindful, being aware while you're doing the action and not worrying about other things, not tomorrow, not yesterday, not paying attention to the immediate surroundings. So fear is the mind killer. So that means that it is hard for us to be embodied in the moment, to experience in the moment, to be present. So our inability to mind has to do with the fact that our fear has killed it, so to speak, or actually squashed our ability to do that. It's not permanent, but rather in that moment, you have erased the possibility in a sense. The next statement says, fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. And this speaks very clearly about how when we think about things, we tend to over-exaggerate them and create fear. And part of it is making sure that if you've ever been hurt once, you come back with twice the defense, which means it may be an exaggerated or an over-response, more correctly, an overreaction. in some cases. Think about when people go into fits of rage and upset and throw tantrums. Would we consider that an overreaction? Possibly. Could we ask ourselves what would have caused them to think that that would be a useful tool by ramping it up and putting on a show to get their way? There's definitely an instrumentalism about it. It's a useful tool to a degree. Maybe not with everyone, but maybe at some point in some part of their history, it was useful. And it worked, or it wouldn't have been repeated. So fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. We tend to believe that if we don't do whatever we think we have to do, this fearful thing or fear-inducing thing is going to somehow kill or obliterate me. I'll, I won't exist anymore. Notice I said I. That is an ego fear, this idea of self-image of myself will no longer be there, which it fears the body not being there to think itself into existence, that being the ego. <laughs> not the true self, but rather the ego, social self-image that we interact with people, the mask of the polis or the marketplace self. The next statement says, I will face my fear. That basically says that the individual recognizes that I need to deal with this. And facing it often means recognizing it the way it is, but without an opinion, without any feelings or emotions in the sense that, oh, this is bad, this is good, or you're not my friend. But rather seeing that, okay, this is a tiger, it looks hungry. This is an angry person, and they're bawling their fists up. Maybe I need to back off 
they're too close because they can physically reach me. Maybe it's this is a volatile situation, it's getting noisy and I don't feel comfortable. And I have room to get away, there's the door, I think I'm going to do that. So this is indicating that I have to take action against what it is that may be fear-inducing, leaving a place that causes anxiety, saying, hey, can we come back and revisit this whenever maybe we're a little cooled off and then uh, we can think about it later because the problem will be there. There's a problem that we're having an argument, for instance. So this is a very good opportunity to create change in the face of it before it gets too big or out of hand. The next statement says, I will permit it to pass over me and through me. That indicates that it is the understanding of what it is that we're fearing and knowing that my body might get a little ramped up but not getting attached to it and recognizing that, okay, that could be dangerous. And also realizing that I don't have to necessarily engage it and be involved in it and get dirty with it by having bad feelings and opinions and, and outcomes that uh, could be things I can't take back later. So I will permit it to pass over me and through me. That means it's impersonal. I'm dealing with it without engaging it and without getting involved with it to the best of my degree of capability there. And the next statement says, and when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Inner eye indicates, well, how am I thinking about it? And some of what we think about is in visual picture. Our ideas and opinions are based on the feelings that we get after having interpreted an external signal that we call our immediate environment. In our internal environment, our feelings come up really fast. That kind of color our impressions and our opinions and feelings about things. That encourage us to believe one way or the other. That may even allow us to assume things to be a certain way if we follow what the feeling or the urge may be telling us at that moment. So after I have turned my inner eye to see its path, the next statement says, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. This is indicating that much of what we think about is at the thinking level. And often the opinions and exaggerations are beyond the actuality or the reality of what's going on externally that is causing me that fear and that stress. Often things and people will do what's called bravado. They'll put on a show to get a reaction out of you. And when they don't get it, they realize, oh, I can't do that. And some may back off. Or they may escalate the game if they're particularly bent on creating harm. And that's potential reality. But the way I think about it, and when I fear about it, when I'm by myself, when I have expectations and worries about the future, that exists solely in my mind. And the way I conceive it, the way I think about it the way I opine and have an opinion about things based on the feelings that I've gotten from things that happened in the past, but it's not happening now. But yet I can fear now by worrying about the significance of the loss that I'm going to have in the future as a result of that. That hasn't happened yet. I've essentially robbed myself of experiencing the immediate moment. The final statement says that where the fear has gone, there will be nothing only I will remain. When I understand not only how I conceive of fear, but how I respond to fear, I, the ego, 
is no longer dominant, but rather is now the perception or the awareness of self. It's only me. I get to choose how I respond. There are people that are very fond of saying, and I've said it before myself, it's not a bad thing. That when people make you feel bad, it's only because you allowed them to. Well, that's qualifiable because you can have fear based on what somebody has said, especially if they've made good on a promise before. Some people get fond of using threats because that is instrumental to them to get the outcomes that they want out of someone else. Manipulation. So if fear is the mind killer, and when I stop attaching myself to it and making exaggerations and judgments of it, then fear will go through, pass over and through me. Afterwards, when I turn my inner eye, I'll realize that fear wasn't anything other than my conception of it. Then it's just me there observing. It's just me. Then that makes me responsible and accountable for how I respond, how I react physically. That raises my ability to increase the quality of life in my life. But not stressing unnecessarily. And only stressing whenever I have to, because there will be times that we need to. Because there is such a thing as a reality of things and people that can be dangerous to us, harmful to us, or derailing of our lives. But applying it when it comes, there's nothing wrong with prediction and being preemptive and being ready and strategized. Nothing wrong with that. But allowing the fear to be carried away by the imagination and the exaggeration of the mind. Because once we do that, our body wants to hijack and say, not only be careful, be extra careful. Put on the prototype bubble armor that keeps you from getting hurt by anything. And maybe it's not even worth all of that. So there's a lot of wasted energy sometimes. So in light of reading the litany of fear, what I want us to take away from this is that often those things that we fear are a result of how we have feelings that we filter our thoughts through and how we have opinions, how we're going to think about things and how we hold them as a result of the feelings that we've had based on a peer response that is protective and doing it level-headed best to protect us. Sometimes it goes a little too far. And we can't afford to let it do that for all things because then when it generalizes that way, then it's hard to control. And that takes away from the quality of life. So that's going to be about it on this episode. How I conceive of fear. How I can think about fear. And what I can realize to help me limit how much energy I expend by being afraid of things. Even things that haven't happened yet. That may impact how I have or how I'm able to interact with my future. So on that note, I want to say thank you for sharing some time with me. And I also want to say follow, like, and share. If you know anybody that you think can benefit from the episodes of this podcast, please pass it along and share it. That would be a great deal of uh, growth for us. And also, I certainly appreciate your sharing this. And I just want to make sure that I'm providing good quality information that's actionable and useful to you in your life without getting bogged down to too much of the science jargon. 
But much of this is uh, founded in science, in neuropsych, and regular psychology, so social dynamics, and uh, the physiology of the human body. So just some things to think about. And I want to tell you thank you once again. And thank you so much for being here with me. And I certainly appreciate your time once again. Talk to you soon. Take care.